continue in our series on the resurrection and shifting away from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning um, will be in 1 Corinthians 6, but also a number of other uh, passages of Paul related to resurrection. Paul writes, All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members? <clears throat> Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who has joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Lord, um, our bodies are the temple of your spirit and that our bodies do not belong to us but to you and we pray this morning for a sense of your presence in our midst in our bodies but in our body collectively as as a church and may you teach us and instruct us this morning about um, the life of resurrection that you call us to as those gifted with bodies and belonging to your body we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul makes uh, an, a somewhat surprising argument, moral argument, in this passage against sexual immorality. And before I give you the argument that he makes that I think is surprising, I just want to give you this word sexual immorality is the word in Greek, it's, it's porneia, from which we get our word pornography. Um, porneia, according to Paul and the early Christians, is, is a really kind of comprehensive category for really all sexual sins. So whether that's adultery or fornication or same-sex sexual acts or, um, you know, I think pornography today would fit into that category. All of this is categorized in terms of what he means by porneia or sexual immorality. But here in particular, the issue he is addressing is men in the congregation who are going to see prostitutes. And um, in the ancient world, prostitution was, didn't have the same social stigma that it does today. Um, it was really common. Um, it's sort of the way pornography is viewed today. You know, it's sort of like, well, it's here, what are, you know, we kind of make do with it or uh, we just know men are going to be men, they're going to do this, right? And so in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman male is going to prostitutes or things. And so what Paul is doing here is he's confronting and he's calling out sexual immorality in the congregation. Now, what I'm interested in here is not so much 
the, the topic of se porneia or sexuality uh, in this, but the kind of argument that he gives and reasons that he gives why not to do it. Now, we would generally expect him just to say something like, hey, this is a violation of God's commandments. This is against God's rules and his law. But he doesn't do that. He assumes that, but he doesn't go there. Instead, what he says is, you should not engage in porneia because of the resurrection. You shouldn't engage in sexual immorality because of the resurrection. Um, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So, your body belongs to God. Our bodies belong to God. And do, um, do you not realize that someday your body will be raised from the dead? So how could you treat your body like that? This is Paul's, um, Paul's argument. He's basically saying that, that porneia, sexual immorality, is completely out of line with the reality of the resurrection. Um, and this is, now this isn't the only time that Paul makes this kind of argument. We see this later on, I talked about it a little bit last week, in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's not talking about sexual immorality per se, but general sin. And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company rules, ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor and stop sinning. I mean, the, he's, he's basically saying, like, the denial of the resurrection um, leads us to kind of a life of despair, which is like, nothing really matters, right? It all ends in death, so why don't I just live and party like I'm going to die tomorrow? And Paul's saying, no, because of the resurrection, our lives have moral meaning and purpose, and we ought to live righteous lives. Now, when we think about the moral life of, as Christians, we generally don't think in terms of resurrection. We think in terms of God's laws, right? The Ten Commandments, which we heard read earlier. Um, but throughout his letters, Paul comes back again and again to the reality of resurrection when he instructs Christians about the moral life. Um, another key text, this comes from Colossians 3. Uh, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. But put to death, therefore, what is in you, sexual immorality, or porneia, <laughs> impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. See, again, here you have, there's two references to resurrection. Again, you've been raised with Christ, right? He's been raised, and there's a sense in which you've been raised with him, although not bodily yet. But then when he refers again, he says that when Christ, your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. What that is a reference to, again, is the actual resurrection of our bodies, right? And, and again, what Paul then does, and the whole chapter goes after this, is all, you know, the moral life. Its foundation, though, is resurrection. Resurrection is the basis for the Christian life. Um, now, my goal this morning is, is simply to try to help you think about Paul's reasoning. Because this is just, again, it's, it's foreign to us. We don't think about the moral life in terms of resurrection. Um, but it's everywhere in Paul. 
everywhere. So I want to re remind you of our big picture theme that in the, of this series, which is I'm trying to get you to think cosmologically about the resurrection. And if there's one thing I hope you learn uh, after this series, not just one, but that you actually remember what, what, it, what cosmology means, right? <laughs> Every week I want to give you a definition so that way you're, because you're, it's not a word we use often. Um, but I'm trying to get you to think cosmologically about the resurrection. And the truth we keep returning to each Sunday is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead introduces something new into the world, a new cosmology. And part of why um, understanding the resurrection um, is so difficult for us is because it, it brings with it and it presumes a new cosmology, one we don't have. And so we're like, this is strange. This doesn't make sense in, in the light of what I know about the universe. And so each week what we've been doing is trying to put these building blocks of a new cosmology, which is really new creation in place. Um, again, a cosmology is it's an overarching framework. It's an overarching framework for how we understand the beginning of the world and the end of the world, how things are ordered in the universe and interrelated and interact with one another. It's sort of, we, we never really, you know, you just sort of assume a cosmology. We don't necessarily think, well, like, I, I believe in this cosmology or that. It's, it's just so all-pervasive that it sort of frames our thinking. But in the, for Paul, he, he actually is always thinking in these cosmological terms, even when he's thinking about sex. And that's where I want to bring you back to this, this uh, 1 Corinthians text. Um, because what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 6 is he is making a cosmological argument against porneia, against sexual immorality. He's saying sexual immorality doesn't just violate God's commands. It violates God's cosmology. <laughs> it violates the cosmology of the old creation and the new creation. It doesn't make sense, right? Um, now, I'm actually not going to give you Paul's reasoning <laughs> for how he does this. I do have a sermon that I preached about five years ago called Sex After the Revolution, in which I kind of give an in-depth exegesis of this text in terms of the issues of human sexuality. And then tonight we're going to talk a little bit about this. But really what I'm interested in here is because I think Paul, he, he shows us, right, that moral practices... Things like who we sleep with or don't sleep with, or where we think sex should happen or not happen. These are, these are moral choices, moral practices. They all make sense against the backdrop of some story, right? Some cosmology that gives it plausibility or meaning. And so, so when a culture's views on an issue change, whether it's around sexuality, <laughs> um, it's moral practice. So like once we used to see as, say, divorce or abortion as sinful, and now we don't see it as sinful. Now what's changed is not just the practice, but what has changed is the cosmology. It's the story. The deep story has changed. And if you sort of pull it back and you start to look deeper, what you see is what we think it means to be a human being in the world related to God and other human beings has changed. Right? That's what I mean. I know this is kind of theoretical. I'll try to keep bringing it down. <clears throat> the, 
the philosopher Alistair McIntyre wrote a, a book, a well-known book in philosophy and ethics called After Virtue. And in the very beginning of that book, he kind of frames up, I think, the, the point here. He says, I can only answer the question, what should I do, if I can answer a prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I can only answer the question, what should I do, if I can answer a prior question, of what story or stories do I participate? And, and that's, what, that's, Paul, that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is trying to help these Corinthian Christians grasp the story of resurrection. And because of this story of what Jesus has done, what God has done in Jesus, it changes what we do, or what we think is possible to do. Okay, so let's think a little bit more about this, um, this story, and what it means to belong or to participate in this story, and for it to be the thing that kind of gives us orientation. Uh, the moral, um, this is the, maybe one of the first principles here, is that the Christian moral, the, the moral life of the Christian is a response, first and foremost, to God's gracious actions in history towards us, right? So the Christian moral life, it starts with response to what, who God is and what God has done. He has died for our sins and he has been raised from the dead. That we're responding to that reality. That's the shape of the Christian life. And incidentally, if you were paying attention in our sacred reading um, from the Ten Commandments, right? On both ends of the Ten Commandments, there's a story that frames those commandments, which is the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt as slaves. You've been liberated. Live in this way, right? So, so the law of God is always fits within a story of who God is and what God has done for us. And as Christians, our lives then are a response. Our moral lives are a response, not to some laws in the abstract, where God says this and don't do this and don't do that. It's a response to this bigger reality of what God is doing and what he has done. It is a response to God's gracious action. So this is the pattern you see again and again in the New Testament, especially in Paul. I want to give you one more verse of Paul that some of you will know, um, where he shows us this, how this works together, right? So Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So Paul has spent 11 chapters giving... Um, detailed and dense theological argument and reasonings for what God has done, how he has saved us, his mercies, in other words. Now, what does it mean for us to live in the light of that, right? Therefore, in the light of God's mercies, this is how you should live, right? So that you see that pattern, right? The pattern is, here's what God has done for us, graciously. Now, here's how we live in response to that reality, um, so our actions, our moral actions, reflect what we believe to be true about the world. Right? This, is, this is so important. And what we believe to be true about the world is that something has happened in the world. God has become incarnate in Jesus. He has died for our sins. Forgiveness is available to us, which means that the reality of death that all of us were staring down has been forestalled and averted and that he's been raised from the dead. 
and that because of this that we have a different kind of life, and history does not end ultimately in our death and the death of everything. It actually ends in resurrection, right? And what that means for our life in the body is that it has meaning, moral meaning and purpose. We do not live with a sense of despair. Death is not the end. And so we belong and we participate in this story. And here's where I I want you to think a little bit more about the way, the role that story plays in our moral imagination. Again, I don't know if we always appreciate this, do not underestimate how powerful story and stories is in shaping your moral imagination, what you think is right and wrong. Um, now, I think there's a lot of times in our life as Christians when we feel really challenged morally. Um, and that can come in different ways, right? We can either, one, struggle to understand the plausibility of God's commands. This is the case with human sexuality. We look at them and we think, that doesn't make sense at all to me. Or uh, we could, we struggle to actually live the story. We're like continually failing, sinning. Or we feel like we're kind of like stuck. We're not growing. Or we just don't care. We don't really care. We're just like, eh, whatever. Now, when this is the situation in our lives, which in one way or another, all of us sort of fit one of these I want, it's helpful to step back and ask this question. What is the dominant story or stories that are shaping my life? What is, what are the dominant stories that are shaping my life? Because the moral life is always living out a kind of story. Uh, Jamie Smith, the philosopher um, at Calvin, has, in his books, has written a lot about this in a relationship of story and, and moral imagination. And he says this, uh, he says, we live into the stories we believe, acting out a script that is beneath our skin. We, we live into the stories we believe, acting out a script that is beneath our skin. And I really like that imagery of story as like a script beneath our skin. Because we're, we're not like consciously saying like, this is my story and I'm acting in court. No, a story is something that just kind of grips you, your mind, your imagination, and, and, and it kind of shapes your gut reaction to the world. And so when things, when you have a gut reaction morally to something as wrong, um, usually there's some story, there's some deep story that has gripped your heart and your imagination. And oftentimes you, you're not even aware of it. It's like a script beneath your skin. And so when we focus our growth as Christians, I think oftentimes we think, oh, I've got to try harder. Either I've got to learn more, I've got to learn more and understand the law of God and be able to convince myself it's right or true. Or I've got to try harder. I keep failing. I just need to double down and try harder. And um, uh, there's, there's, these are appropriate at times, but not always very helpful. I think it's better for us to think in terms of training ourselves in a story, learning to live into the story, being shaped and formed by the story more and more, um, and just attending to the stories that are shaping our lives. This is why media consumption is so important. Like, what are the media, I mean, you know, every, you know, like sometimes we just sort of blindly just absorb all kinds of stuff or in entertainment consumption. I mean, all the media and advertising is, it's all telling a story. And those stories are not the story of cross and resurrection. They are not. 
and yet we're immersed in them bodily, in our minds, constantly. And they, they, they rewire us. And so, it's so this is what Paul means when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. He's saying, like, the world wants to shape you in all these distorted ways. And so we have to pay attention to the stories of our life. And we have to pay attention to the story. Um, because story and imagination is really what motivates and directs our lives. In the children's book, The Little Prince, there's a line that captures this idea of imagination and action. Um, it says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You know, if you, you want to build a ship, you're not like, do this and get this and, no, talk about the sea and make people long for the sea where they want to be on the sea. And they're like, how do we get on the sea? Oh, let's build a boat. Right? That's the power of imagination that motivates our actions in the world. And this is precisely what Paul has in mind when he's, he, he's always instructing us as Christians, long, imagine, resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We have been raised in Jesus, and someday we will be fully raised in Jesus. Long for this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. God has raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. So, moral growth in our lives as Christians is being trained in a, in a very specific story um, and growing deeper into that story for it to grasp our hearts more and more. And there's there's a lot to be said here that I can't say this morning about how you do that. One, I'm just going to parenthetically say this because I don't really address it in my sermon, but you don't grow into stories if you don't have people you're living out the story with. <laughs> so like the neglect of Christian community and being part of the church in an intentional and deliberate and disciplined way um, is, is the only way you actually can live into a story. So if you're systematically disconnected from the body of Christ or very casual, it shouldn't be surprising if you find that you have a hard time feeling like the story makes sense to you. Okay, that's just a little parenthetical, non-scripted in here, but I feel like that's an important point to make. But there's one other last point. This is the last point here um, about how the resurrection is kind of the foundation of our moral lives. And it's this. Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that we are given the power to live out the story. We're given the power to live out the story because of the Spirit. Now, again, it's one thing to have a sense that our lives morally are a response to God's action in history. Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Um, but often, just like the Exodus, those, those are events in the past, those are things that happened thousands of years ago. And here I am trying to live out this ancient, these ancient events now. And there's a sense that we can often feel alone. And the reality is that the Christian story is, is a countercultural story. It's a story that pushes in the opposite direction that the world pushes in. And so it's a struggle to live out the story. It's a struggle at times. And um, I think of it like, you know, if you're canoeing or kayaking, up a very uh, strong river, right, that's current, and you're going upstream, and so much of the Christian life is kind of like that. It's that feeling like I'm paddling upstream, and I've got this current moving in the opposite direction. 
And there's a time we just feel kind of like, I don't have the energy, I don't have the power um, to do the right thing, to live the way that God has called me to live. Resurrection in Jesus means that we are empowered by the Spirit to live the story. And so it's not simply, the Christian moral life isn't simply, well, here's the story, now live it. The Christian life is, here's the story, and here's the power, now live it. And, and so I, I, I want to consider briefly here uh, Jesus' own relationship with the Spirit. Um, because it is Jesus' relationship with the Spirit that is the basis for our relationship with the Spirit. Um, and here I, I want to direct our attention to Romans 8. Um, Paul makes a really, really crucial connection between Jesus, the Spirit, and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Um, and so in Romans 8, this is in verses uh, 9, uh, 8 and 9 through 11. Uh, what Paul is addressing here is he's addressing, um, he's arguing that, that as Christians, we no longer live under the power of sin in the flesh, right? The flesh isn't, isn't the body or material things. The flesh is like our sinful nature that always wants to point away from God. That's the flesh. And so here's, what, here's what Paul says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And here's the key phrase. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so there's a lot going on there, but what, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, God raised Jesus from the dead. He raised Jesus through the dead, through the Spirit. And that same power that, that brought Jesus from, from death to life, that Spirit has been poured out in you. And so that same divine power dwells in you, which is the power over the reality of sin and death. That Spirit dwells in you. And what it does when it dwells in us is it produces life and righteousness, and ultimately freedom. Freedom from the power of sin, which is the power of sin leads to death, right? So again, see all the resurrection themes here of making alive, right? So the spirit of God's resurrection dwells in us and is at work in us. So there, again, there are just so many different applications on this point um, about how the spirit empowers, right? Because that's the question. Well, okay, I believe that the spirit dwells in me and the spirit empowers me. Well, what does that mean exactly? How do I tap into that? Is that kind of like a spiritual and moral Red Bull of sorts? Or, like, what, what is it exactly? Um, there's just one, one thing I want to focus on that the Spirit does, which is an empowering thing. The Spirit affects our union with Christ. The Spirit affects our union with Christ. Um, again, in you know, again, this is all over Paul. If anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, um, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you are also raised with Christ. The real power of the Spirit is relational power. It's, it's, it's connecting power. And the relational power and connecting power is the way that the Spirit connects you with Jesus. And by connecting with Jesus, connects you with the Father. 
and helps you understand that you belong to God, that you are a son and a daughter and you're beloved by God. The foundation of the Christian life is union with Christ. The more you grow in union with Jesus, the more you will grow morally. Because again, I, I, it's so often that we think about growth morally in sort of abstract terms or in very individualistic terms. But when you grow in depth of relationship, of your sense of who Jesus is and what he has done and that he has incorporated you more and more, the more you grow morally. And it's like, you know, I've been married now for 22 years and, um, you know, we're one flesh, right? From the beginning. But there's a way that as you grow in life with your spouse, you kind of keep growing deeper and deeper, more and more intimate. And it's the same with the Christian life. We grow deeper into Jesus Christ. And what that it gives us is that we have a new power source. And that power source comes by virtue of the fact that we have a new identity. We're beloved sons and daughters of the Father. Paul makes this shift later in Romans 8. And I'll close with this. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, we know that we can cry out to you as our Father, as our, the one who loves us, the one who dotes, the one who cares. Um, and Lord, that's so important for us because so much of our culture today, we feel like cosmic orphans, casting about, looking for places to belong, searching for identities, looking for meaning and purpose. And Lord, in, in you, Lord, um, we have a real relationship and belonging. And you are the creator of this universe, and you are the redeemer of it. And we are at the center of your salvation and renewing project. So help us, Lord, as a church, as a community, live more and more into the resurrection, which is life in your spirit. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. At the Lord's Supper, we have all these themes coming in together in one place. 